What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson, and we explore subjects here related to food plus drink plus culture. With questions or comments about our show, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can always reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. Today, we're going to do something that's a little bit of a break from the norm. Along with someone very near and dear to her, we are honoring the life and impeccable voice of none other than the beautiful songstress Phyllis Hyman. The first time that I saw Phyllis Hyman perform live was in the campus center at the University of Massachusetts, where I went to school in 1978. That's a long time ago for some of you. But that date was recently confirmed by my UMass brothers, Connie Napier and Donald Bird Jr. in one of our very enjoyable group text chains. I was a fan of her first LP titled Phyllis Hyman, which was released in 1977. And I absolutely wore out the Pharoah Sanders album, Love Will Find a Way where Phyllis joined for several tracks, including her exquisite four-octave range vocals that blended with the haunting, deep soulfulness of Pharoah Sanders' tenor sax. And I'll tell you, that made one beautiful record. If you haven't listened to Love Will Find a Way, you should. It's on Spotify. It's just a, and it's an exquisite record. So several months ago, music industry veteran and the person who keeps everyone in the black music community connected, old friend Pat Shields called and asked if I'd consider honoring Phyllis's legacy on Corner Table Talk. If so, she'd introduce me to the person handling her estate, Glenda Gracia. So thank you, Pat. Shout out to you for the introduction to Glenda, who is here today. And I'm so happy to have her join me. And I'm really honored that Glenda entrusted me with, with doing this today with her. So Glenda is an entertainment industry veteran, was a longtime friend and manager of Phyllis, who now, aside from handling Phyllis's estate, has several projects in the works to honor her legacy. And I can tell you, as I've gotten to know Glenda, Phyllis's legacy is in good hands. So Glenda, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Megan. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm grateful. Yeah, it's so nice to have you. Thank you. So, Glenda, to get us rolling, we start with our short order questions. I'm going to fire a few of these at you and get your response. So tell me, what is currently on your playlist? What are you listening to? Well, Brad, I have several playlists that are mood or purpose-driven based on workout or groove in general or ambient for focus. And the music is culturally divergent. It ranges from Drake to Jill Scott, Alicia Keys, Jasmine Sullivan, and Beyonce on the one hand, to Phyllis Lettucey and Gloria Lynn on the second hand, and to dream pop and chant artists like Tina Malia, Ajit Kar, and Jai Jagadish on the third hand. Oh, you threw a little variety at me there, Glenda. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> a few different moods going on. How about morning time? What kicks off your morning? What's your morning beverage? My first beverage is water. Then later, after my workout, I have my smoothie concoction, and it's filled with everything that makes my body and mind feel really ready for the world. 
It's working by the looks of uh, your beautiful face. It's also paying off aesthetically. So vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or none of the above? What's your diet? My diet for the most part of my life has been and still is plant-based, Brad, meaning nothing with eyes. So I loved your recent podcast featuring the vegan sister, Shinari Freeman from Cadence. I really look forward to that as a mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whenever I'm back in New York, I would say that food sounds sensational. And the last one of these, Glenda, what are you reading? What's on your nightstand? Right now, I am currently toggling among three books. The first one is the Compassion Book by Hema Chodron, who is a Buddhist teacher. Then there's Contagious, a book about why things catch on by Jonah Berger. And Black Buddhist and the Black Radical Tradition which is about the practice of stillness and the movement for liberation by a friend of mine who is also a scholar and Buddhist teacher. Her name is Rima Beasley Flad. So I toggle back and forth among those books. I knew it wouldn't be just one. And for those of you just meeting Glenda, she is a uh, mindfulness and meditation student and, and has been into the practice for a long time. And I'm actually going to close on a question when we get to that point relative to that, because it's a very interesting part of her life. And I'd like a little insight into that. But before we do that, let me ask you, Glenda, how are you? How are you doing? I feel grateful to be looking out into the beautiful nature of Florida and I'm feeling good. Thank you. Wonderful. So you're a Temple Law School grad and have since cultivated a really distinguished career in business, talent management, brand strategy and packaging. And I'm curious, that's a varied career path post-law. What led you into entertainment from law? I was initially inspired to go to law school because I wanted to become a high-powered criminal defense attorney like Cecil B. Moore and make changes in the system. However, I became discouraged because I soon learned that the deck scene really stacked against us. So I began looking for another way to help. Then through a mentor, I was introduced to the world of entertainment and Kenny Gamble, who was my mentor's client at the time. Kenny was in the process of renegotiating his deal with CBS, and my assignment was to learn everything I could about CBS and the business, the entertainment business, to help offer ideas for that new deal. I was lit from that encounter and became passionate about advocating for artists. When I graduated from Temple's Law School, I was offered a job at CBS Television in Business Affairs and the Entertainment Division. And that is where I really cut my eye teeth. I learned and trained in negotiating deals, contracts, and budgets. That team of mentors for me at CBS was impeccable, and I'm really grateful. Wow. As a person of color, when you got that job at CBS, were there obviously Kenny Gamble was in the mix somewhere, but were there many people of color at the time doing what you had aspired to do? Let me rephrase that. In the television industry, there was only one other person of color doing what I was doing at the level that I was doing it at. And that was Chuck Smiley over at ABC News. He wasn't even in entertainment. I was the only person of color in the entertainment division of a major network. And I was the only woman in the industry doing what I was doing. I was fantasizing that I had broken through the glass ceiling, but my head was still bumping on it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. 
But you underplay yourself as a trailblazer, Glenda, but I have to say that I think that's a whole nother part of your story that uh, I'd like to find out a little bit more about. And then following that, you work with President Carter on creating Black Music Month. So talk a little bit about how that came about and why you thought having a month celebrating Black music was important to do. During the time that I was the founding executive director for the Black Music Association, it became really clear that like country music, Black music needed to be officially celebrated. So through the efforts of industry veterans and power players at that time, Jules Malamud, who was the senior vice president of Black Music Association, Jim Terrell, who was over at CBS Records and a board member, and Ken Gamble, who founded the Black Music Association and was the chair, our board of directors visited Nashville to check out how the Country Music Association honored country music, and we wanted to learn from that business model. So through our board, along with advisory board member Phil Walden of Capricorn Records, who was really close with Carter, we were able to lobby then-President Jimmy Carter to host an inaugural celebration on the White House lawn in June of 1979. And our board and other industry dignitaries and members of Congress attended that inaugural celebration. Extraordinary Black music artists performed, including Andre Crouch and Chuck Berry. And while launching the recognition of June as Black Music Month in 1979, through this proclamation by Carter, was really magical and very significant. It was not until Deanna Williams' lobbying efforts with President Clinton and Congress 20 years later that legislation would be passed to make it official. And so that legislation is intact now. It's official and Deanna Williams is known basically as the godmother of Black Music Month because it was through her efforts with local politicals like Arlen Specter and Chuck of Ta, other people like that in Philadelphia. And she walked the halls of Congress, not good morning doors, to make sure it got done. You can hear it took a village. It took a village to get this done. That's phenomenal, Glenda. And it makes me think about the importance, again, of understanding how things come to be. Because it's so easy to just, oh, I heard it's Black Music Month in June. And even as a person of color, you just, okay, what does that mean? I'm going to listen to what? It's something that you can easily take for granted if you don't understand the importance and the effort and the intention behind it of the people that decided to initiate it and what it actually took. I think if we really understand some of these stories, we'd really have a different level of appreciation for them. So it's quite an effort and I really admire that. Thank you for, for sharing that story. So let's turn to our subject today, honoring the late, great Phyllis Hyman. Phyllis was born in in Philadelphia and she grew up in, in Pittsburgh. And Glenda, before Phyllis became famous, she hung out a bit in my old neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I should also mention that that was my mom's first name, Phyllis. So either Phyllis took a liking to me or I took an instant liking to her because she had the same name as my mom. But that aside, she became a a regular at my dad's restaurant, The Cellar. She loved the food and I got to know her a bit there. 
enough so that when she performed that gig at UMass in 1978 that I referred to, a few of my friends and I got to go backstage and say hello. And you can imagine as a college student with your buddies <laughs> going backstage to say hello because you feel the time and I was feeling myself for a moment there. But uh, we had a nice laugh about that, my buddies and I. But uh, Linda, I'd like to open, if you don't mind, with a sample from the track that Phyllis recorded with Farrow Sanders that I had referred to from his LP, Level Find a Way. It was released in 1978. The cut is titled Everything is Good. And she's also joined by Norman Connors on vocals. And there's an interesting side story about Norman Connors and his admiration for Frau Sanders, who had fallen on some hard times. And long story short, Norman convinced Clive Davis to, to sign Frau Sanders, which he did, which ultimately led to this LP and helped Frau dig himself a little bit out of a ditch. So... With that, I'm going to play a little taste of the Pharaoh Sanders album, and the track is Everything I Have Is Good. So Glenda, when you hear Phyllis's voice, you've listened to, heard a lot of vocalists, you've been around a lot of famous people, you listen to music as I do, but that voice, boy, it is just unmistakable. That's a good word. That's a good word. Unmistakable, unique, extraordinary, all those kinds of descriptors. And so many people want to pay tribute to Phyllis and do, and it's hard for me to even deal with that because it's not her voice. It's not her. But yes, her voice was one of time. Definitely. Yeah, I, I would say, I, I, and I just love that record. That record is beautiful from beginning to end. So Glenda, when did you first become aware of Phyllis and talk about the first time that you saw her perform? Oh, wow. As I mentioned, I was working at CBS in 1975, 1976, and it was in 1976 that I got a call from Stuart Bosley, who at the time was Roberta Flack's boyfriend, and he said, there's this woman, you've got to just come check her out with me and Roberta. So I said, okay, why not? Sure. So we went up to McKell's, and needless to say that I was wow, mesmerized by her. I was totally and completely mesmerized by Phyllis and her voice. And she, after her set, came over and joined us at the table there. And the thing that struck me, she was really wonderful and just upbeat and very gregarious. She was lit from performing. And one of the things that struck me in the conversation was that when she was asked what her day was like for the next day. I was supposed to do an interview for People Magazine, but there's a conflict with my nail schedule, so I'm, they're going to have to reschedule people for me. Priorities. And in that moment, I said, this woman needs support. <laughs> but yeah, so it was really from there that I just began to adore Phyllis. And of course, I continued to appreciate and want to make sure that she was protected and that her music was 
that she became uplifted as an artist. And the more I learned about her, the more deeply that became for me. No pressure that Roberta Flack happened no to be pressure. sitting at the table. That, that's a, <laughs> she didn't feel that at all. And shout out to Stuart Bosley, to Boz, a great character. He's from New York. I have a quick, funny story I'll share with you. So my dad and Mike McKell grew up together in Hartford, Connecticut, and my dad and Mike were supposed to go into business. I've told this story before on this show, but I'll tell the abbreviated version. Anyway, they ended up not going to business together. Pat and Mike got married and my dad ended up opening the cellar. So Phyllis is performing down the street from the cellar. I had never been to McKell's and my father and Mike didn't speak, but I really wanted to see Phyllis. So I go up to the front door expecting to be comp because I'm Brad from the cellar. Of course, that's how I should be treated. And the doorman was having none of it. I think the cover charge was like 25 or $30, which was a lot of money for me. And, uh, and I stood there for a minute. I was like, yo, man, yo, you going to charge me? And standing off to the side, smoking a cigarette with the, was our neighborhood number banker, a guy named Gopher. And he pulls me by my jacket and he says, yo, man, don't ever play yourself like that in your own neighborhood and somebody else's spot. When you roll up to somebody's spot, man, you go in your pocket, you pull out your money. When you go to the bar, you spend your money, you buy other people drinks. He said, don't ever play yourself like that again. I didn't get in that night, but I never made that mistake again. So thank you to Gopher for that. So let's play a track from Phyllis's 1977 debut album. This one is written by the prolific songwriter Skip Scarborough, and it's titled No One Can Love You More. And Glenda, I'll ask you to talk about it a little bit on the other side, if you will. People ask of me for loving you. Why should I say the reasons on my own? Oh, oh, no one is wanted more than I want you. No one is needed more than I do. No one is wanted more than I want you. No one is wanted more. Again, just playing those songs from her, Glenda, is, so it just takes me right back to uh, those days playing albums. So when you hear that and uh, you start to, to reminisce and Phyllis's voice, of course, as we said, was so unique and her style was unique and radio back in those days was very segmented. So when you first heard her, did you automatically say, oh, I know what to do with this artist. I know how she should be heard. I know where her music should be played. I know what kind of song she should be singing. Tell me, give me a little bit of what you're, what you were feeling and thinking when you heard Phyllis's voice and wh where you thought she should fit it in the lexicon of, of artists. Well, that's a really great question. Thank you. So I'm going to say that my management of Phyllis didn't come until the eighties. So everything before 1982 or three, somewhere in there was before my sort of formal official relationship with her. And at the time I was really fangirl. I just loved her and listened to her music from that perspective. For me, she could turn a ballad out and make it dreamy and you would cry or one could cry. And there was always this urge to know how deep the love would be that she was talking about. There was always that. So 
when I would listen to her music, I would go, wonder who is programming this music for her? Who's giving her this, these songs, really? Because in my mind, Phyllis could sing because her voice was so extraordinary. She could sing anything from the Star Spangled Banner to what you played with Pharaoh. And, and it wasn't hard for her to do. She could just do it. She could sing a McDonald's and did <laughs> sing a McDonald's commercial. But in any event, what I felt at some point, and perhaps this was really inspired by how I appreciated seeing her in Sophisticated Ladies. What I really felt was that Phyllis needed to find a way to become in the space of an iconic performer like a Barbara Streisand or a Nancy Wilson or an Ella Fitzgerald. That, in that realm, that's how I always saw her. And so I would be to be able to support that for her, to help her get there. To your point about radio being segmented, not only was radio segmented, but the industry itself was segmented and still is. Not as, not quite as obvious as it was then, because then it was segmented around race and budgets and those kinds of things. You could get on the radio if you were a black artist, you would get on the radio for whatever that particular playlist was. And there had to be a lot of promotion around that promotion of the station. And then eventually the artists would, the artist's music would rise to whatever the top of the playlist was. If it became a hot enough record, it could quote cross over into pop. So that whole protocol is still used today. But it was a very frustrating protocol because Phyllis didn't fit squarely into any of those playlist descriptions. She just didn't. Her voice was, and at the time, maybe, I'm not sure when The Quiet Storm came about, but at the time, I don't think The Quiet Storm was, in fact, radio format. But once it became a radio format, then Phyllis fits squarely within The Quiet Storm format. Yeah, that could be home for her. I think that was Vaughn Harper, LS in New York, was the first Quiet Storm program that I remember. I can't remember Melvin's last name, but Melvin created it, I think, for either the Howard Station or one of the D.C. stations. I really can't remember, but I believe that it was Melvin that actually created it. Vaughn Harper definitely took, another, took it to another level. Yeah, that was my man. I realized during this time, Glenda, this was not your time managing her just getting in her orbit. And I want you to tell a story about that in a moment. But in 78, she released her second LP somewhere in my last lifetime. That furthered the confusion about how she should be positioned as an artist. So to your point, you've got this unique artist with this unique presence and voice, and then you've got radio with its certain formats and divisions and definitions. Phyllis wasn't really sliding into any of those categories. And yet here she has this exquisite voice and she's a beautiful lady, but there's this tough finding the right kind of lane for her. Really tough. And I think to Clive Davis's credit that he married her with Barry Manilow somewhere in my lifetime, because that was a pop record, no doubt, straight up. And again, to the credit of her voice, 
she mastered it. It wasn't even a problem for her to sing that song. It had the drama in it. It had the depth in it. It had the range in it. In my mind, it was a really just a master pop record produced and written by a pop guy, Barry Manilow. So what kept it from becoming a big pop song? Who knows except what we could speculate. And we could speculate that maybe it wasn't what people were expecting from Phyllis because she had been singing R&B and jazz-esque kinds of songs and suddenly out of the blue comes this pop song. You know what I'm saying? So I don't want to second guess exactly what happened, but I believe that somewhere in my lifetime was on track for her. I thought that if she could get more material like that at that level, because it was a really high level, that that she would have been on track to becoming that Streisand, that Nancy Wilson, that Shirley Bassey, all of that, all of those women. Sure. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the challenges that Phyllis had with mental health. But as you're describing that, Glenda, I can't help but think that how she must have felt when she feels like it's not a direct connect with what she's doing and what people think she should be doing. And I wonder if that didn't start to some of her inner dialogue relative to just the challenge of trying to meet others' expectations and have your music succeed and sing the songs you love. And that whole gumbo feels like it could be a little tricky. To the credit of artists today, I believe that they have learned some of the sad stories of artists such as Phyllis and others from her era and have begun to own themselves, empower themselves through their music, songwriting, or collaborations with people that are going to tailor make things to fit who they are and really put themselves out there just as they are, like Jasmine Sullivan doing hotels. That's big. It's huge. I give her props for being bold enough to express herself creatively that way. In those times for Phyllis, it was hard for her to not feel oppressed, for sure. And she did feel oppressed. She felt oppressed as a woman. She felt oppressed as an artist. And I believe that when you are oppressed like that, it really hits up against your understanding of your worth, your self-worth. And artists have to express themselves because of their self-worth. They have to create whatever that vision is and bring it out as a force from within them because they feel worthy of that expression. So if you're struggling with your self-worth and you're not being appreciated to the full extent of who you are as an artist, it, it can be tricky. It can definitely be tricky and very frustrating. Yeah. Thank you for that. So as you're getting to know Phyllis, and I know I've read that she liked to patronize Black-owned businesses, she liked to be supportive of Black entrepreneurs, but you're moving around her circle and getting to know her a little bit. There was a story about a promoter that he was in a deal with for, I think, a particular gig, and you helped her get out of that. Do you mind telling that story, Glenda? It's a pretty straightforward story, and will only take a few seconds, but Essentially, I had been introduced to Phyllis through a mutual friend whose name is Craig Hentosh. And Craig and Phyllis were really tight. As a matter of fact, he was on the road with her at one point. But one of Phyllis's booking agents 
had put her in a very awkward position with this promoter and it wasn't working. And she was upset about it and told Craig what was going on. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll get my friend Linda to help me get out of that deal. So I got integrated into the deal and I called the promoter and we had the heart to heart and things worked out so that Phyllis didn't have to go through with that arrangement. And her booking agent got boxed upside the ears a little bit too. So we eventually got the booking agent as well. Phyllis was not really used to, let me rephrase this differently. There were certain parts of the industry that made artists feel like they didn't have a voice with professionals. Like they couldn't really get approval from their booking agents. They would just do gigs and managers would just do gigs or whatever, make deals, whatever. And the artists really didn't have any feedback into that process. But my relationship with Phyllis was very different because I wanted to honor who she was. I wanted to respect. Phyllis was one of the most extraordinarily bright people that I know. I'm going to say she was genius. So she had very significant ideas about the way she wanted to do things and who she wanted to be. I wanted to always honor that. So that was unique in our relationship, but it was not unique in relationships that she had before that. She was always struggling to have her voice heard. So it had to have been a beautiful moment for her to recognize that someone like yourself could bring that into her life and that skill set. And I assume you made that promoter an offer they couldn't refuse. So it's good to know that you can call Glenda when you need a heavy <laughs> hand too. <laughs> The promoter was a woman, which is why I think I was able to really have the heart to heart because I was trying to help her understand that she needed to get on the right page about the whole thing. Around this time, Phyllis in 1979 had her biggest hit to date with How to Love Me, which I'm sure a lot of our audience is familiar with. It reached uh, number 10 on the R&B charts and number 50 on the pop charts. Surprisingly, it didn't go higher than that on the pop charts. But let me play a little bit of that for us. So an upbeat track, Glenda, and Phyllis bounces back with How to Love Me. And I think we all have heard that over the years many times. And obviously a beautiful lady, unique vocalist, but just tell me a little bit more. Now we're getting closer to the time that, that you got involved with her as a manager. So talk a little bit about how that actually came about when you took on managerial duties. We are now getting closer to... What I'm going to say is the, the time where Phyllis is beginning to trust me. She and I are starting to hang out socially a little bit, and she's starting to see how I work with others. She knew that I was 
and founding executive director of the Black Music Association, and I had relationships that were important in the business. She was really starting to take me in, and she knew that I could support her, like I said earlier, in a way that may be unique to the relationships that she'd had in the past. One of the things that I believe probably inspired her the most was in the early 80s, my then business partner and I were representing a client in Philadelphia that was a venue, the New Tech venue. And New Tech was a historic landmark venue in Philadelphia like the Apollo Theater in Harlem, and before its restoration, it was known as the Uptown Theater. So we helped them produce their shows. And Phyllis was going to perform there, and we needed to figure out a strategy for how to really make that show not only sell out, but just be like buzz mania, just have everybody wanting to get in. And at the time that the show was going to happen, it was near her birthday. So... We inspired the owner of the theater to create this package so that if you bought a ticket to the show, you could also come to the after party, which was going to be Phyllis's birthday party. You couldn't get into the party unless you showed your ticket from the show, basically. So it worked. Everything sold out. The party sold, the concert sold out. The party was a smash. And she was so excited that she just on the spot said, I want to work with you guys. And that pretty much came to be. And then we got together and our relationship formally started from there. What label was she on at that she, time? She was at the end of her Arista deal. And that relationship with Arista was an interesting one for her because Clive, as we both know, was very successful in the business. He had discovered and created celebrity for untold talent. And so his conundrum with Phyllis was, what is going to make this work? Like, how will I break her out? He attempted through various ways of doing that. And I think that because he didn't really have a beat on her, he couldn't wrap his head around who she was. There was a lot of tension there. There was a lot of tension there. And as I said, Phyllis, she really wanted to have her voice understood, not only her artistic voice understood, but her personal voice as a human being. She wanted to have her voice understood and heard. And it seemed like there was more oppression there. Let's just say that more oppression there than needed to be between Clive and Phyllis. So it got to be, it got to be hard, but you know how to love me, of course, was a big record for her. Then I'm think. After that, he tried to do something because it was a good dance track. He tried to do something else with dance and he got Michael Narada Walden to write and produce a goddess of love and riding the tiger. And those were disastrous tracks for her because they were completely off brand, just completely off brand. And I think that the relationship that was already tense just became even more tense. So the last album then that she made with Aristid was not successful. There were some good cuts on that album, mm. but what got pushed was not great. No. Okay. And also, I think you've mentioned in our conversations that during this time, there was a certain song that was offered to Phyllis that she decided not to do that another artist did do that became 
<laughs> a pretty big record. <laughs> What's the story there, Glenda? Phyllis is still in Arista and she's trying to make the best of it. She's up for creating a new album. And some songs are coming to her from the A&R department. You may remember Jerry Griffith. I don't know if you knew him from Arista. But Jerry was, yeah. he was the yeah. A&R guy there. And so Phyllis and I are in San Francisco. She was invited to guest on the Whispers album and to record Suddenly with them. So we're in San Francisco recording Suddenly with the Whispers. And we're in her hotel room. And I said to her, you've got to listen to these songs. Well, Jerry wants you to listen to these songs. He thinks they're wonderful. So we're going through the tape bag, like just with all these demos, listening to these songs. And we come across this one song called What's Love Got to Do With It? She's, what's love got to, I, that song, I'm not feeling that song. That song is not for me. Here's another Clyde, like I'm trying to be a rock, what he wants me to be rock and roll next. And I'm not feeling that song. Nope, not me. The writer for the song, oh, I forget his name. I'm sorry. Minnie Ripperton's husband, I can't remember his name. But anyway, yeah, he gave the song to Tina Turner. Wow. So it becomes a mega hit for Tina Turner. What was Phyllis's reaction? Did she have any after she realized? She didn't care. She had no regrets. She didn't care. <laughs> Good for her. Okay. So the eighties, you're managing her. There's a lot going on. You get out of the record deal with, with Clive at Arista. There's some interest in Phyllis from a lot of different people, Prince among them, but you end up taking her over to Gamble and Huff. That's where ultimately she signs. And around the time that uh, she becomes a darling over there, there's tons of songwriters, lots of talent. She's their focus. And also it was around the time, unfortunately, that Teddy Pendergrass, who had been there, their star up until that time, had his infamous car accident that left him paralyzed. What was the environment like at, at Philly International around that time? As you said, Teddy, who was massive for them, was in basically in the process of restoring his own life because of that accident. And Billy Paul and Rawls, they were moving through other career avenues. So virtually, when Phyllis went to PIR, she was indeed the darling. She, of course, went in there and, and owned the place. She, it was not deep for her to just go up in there and walk the halls and just knock on Kenny's door. And he wouldn't even say, come in. He, she just opened the door. And he, so there was this really family kind of relationship that was being cultivated. And because of Phyllis's voice, that roster of songwriters could not wait to work with her. Dexter Wanzell and Cynthia Biggs and Kenny himself, Bunny Siegler, all those incredible writers that had been writing hits for the OJs and all those really wonderful PIR artists. They were just waiting to wrap their music around Phyllis. And what was wonderful was that Phyllis could have input. She really could have her desires nized and honored and could always be in conversation about it. So yeah, it was a completely different, she was big fish, little pond. That's really what happened. And she mm -hmm. was, because she felt special there, she was very happy. 
I have to imagine that uh, coming from the experience that we talked about before, where they weren't sure how to position her and there's this conflict into an environment as you, the one that you described with all the love and the support and the artists around her to help her and become who she wanted to be. What a great time. So she does Sophisticated Ladies on Broadway. It's a huge hit. She's a fantastic star. She gets nominated for a Tony. The show gets nominated for several Tonys. I think Hinton Battle ultimately was the only winner of a Tony, but the idea that she's nominated as a Broadway actress, performer, but then she doesn't win. So talk about that a little bit, Glenda, and how I've not had many moments I've had in my life where I've been, but I can only imagine that even if it's not something you're thinking that you ultimately would be someone who would be nominated once you are. And the expectation and the excitement of that comes with the nomination and the nod and the acknowledgement that there's a backside to that if you don't win. Did Phyllis experience that? What was that, that like for her, that uh, the nomination and ultimately not winning? That set her back for sure. She was the talk of the town in Sophisticated Ladies. She really was. She was the darling of Broadway. Her name was buzzing everywhere. And at the time, we were just beginning to nurture our relationship when she was in Sophisticated Ladies. I went to see the show, and again with Craig, we hung out on the last night of the show. And she was really quite frustrated and saddened by not getting that tone. But she also knew that it was not shabby to be nominated. She knew that. And to her credit, it was nominated. Mm -hmm. So... It doesn't get you the statue, but it gets you the credit. And she was inspired. She was inspired sure. by that. Because here she was literally coming from nowhere onto a Broadway stage and tearing it up and getting a nomination for it. You know what I'm saying? So there was some disappointment, great disappointment and frustration. And she also recognized that the nomination was pretty important. I just remember the great time on Broadway. I saw that show a couple of times and Debbie Allen had directed Sweet Charity. It's just such an exciting yeah. theater time to be in New York. And that Phyllis's show, Sophisticated Ladies, was yeah. just sensational. And her performances were showstoppers, always getting standing ovations or whistles and howls from the audience. Just amazing. Just really amazing. One of the things that yeah. I think Kenny was inspired by was not only what she did in that show, but also what he heard in her voice that he described as a tear. So I think that while she didn't win, she did feel supported later on. Fantastic. So the first LP on Gamble and Huff of Philly International is Living All Alone. Let's play a little bit of that title track and then we'll come back and talk on the other side of it. And I find it's another
So Glenda, to the extent that you're comfortable, can you talk about some of the personal demons that Phyllis was battling behind the scenes? Because again, as someone who we'd see her around and she was always so confident and brash and old and smart and beautiful and she's tall, she's statuesque. She certainly never seemed to lack any confidence, which would give you the impression that this is a person that just has the world in the palm of their hands. But as we all come to know, as we get a little bit older, life is not always so simple for all of us or for any of us for that matter. But to the extent that you're comfortable, what was going on with Phyllis behind the scenes? I think that what was going on more than anything was that Phyllis was learning more and more about her insecurities and how she was masking those insecurities. And so within the context of her masking those insecurities, it was important for her to really begin digging into where those securities, insecurities were coming from. And look, I'll just say it straight up. Phyllis was an exception to the rule she was taller than most women. She was more beautiful than most women. She had this extraordinary gift. So she was a standout. And despite all of that, she was really insecure about her personal relationships. She wasn't sure why people were attracted to her. And when she got into relationships, she wasn't altogether sure what would make her boyfriend stay with her. So at the end of the day, her personal demons would surface and interfere with those relationships at times. It was challenging for both Phyllis and whomever she was with at the time, whatever partner she, it was hard for her. But she did attempt on several occasions to meet those demons head on. And those successes were short-lived. And then she would slide right back. That has to be tough being around someone and you observe peaks and valleys. Of course, we all have them, and, but some of them are more extreme for others. So in June of 91, Phyllis releases her eighth studio album, Prime of My Life, and had her only number one hit on the R&B charts with the uptempo, Don't Want to Change the World. But uh, let's listen to a little bit of the title track, Prime of My Life, and then we'll come back and talk a little more. So Don't Want to Change the World, her first number one hit, and the title of the track we just listened to, Prime of My Life, while quietly battling her personal issues, it would be natural to read into the title of the album, coupled with that single, that she was in fact in the prime of her life with every reason to live. And Glenda, I had a restaurant in Los Angeles in the 90s called Georgia. And a pretty popular place. It was a Sunday night. I didn't normally work on Sunday nights. It's a Sunday night that Phyllis happened to be in town in 1995. And she stopped by the restaurant. Of course, I missed her and I hadn't seen her in a while. But she left me a note to say how sorry she was that she had missed me and that she had stopped by to say hello. And that was in the spring of 1995. 
not too long after that, I heard the uh, shocking news that uh, she had taken her own life, that she had passed away. Of course, you'd never expect to hear that. I still have that. It's just scribbled on a little Good piece of paper, but it had to have been so incredibly painful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It, it meant something to me then and it means something to me now, but so incredibly painful for you and those that loved you. But what can you share about the days and weeks leading up to that? Did you see that she was potentially getting darker or withdrawing more into herself? Were there obvious signs around that Phyllis was really slipping into the danger zone? Phyllis never made any bones about suicide. Right. She never pretended that was not an option for her. As a matter of fact, she always said it was an option for her. Throughout our relationship, there were, I'm just going to say, several interventions, and I'll keep it there. And for the last time, I won't go as far as to say there was anything going on for her that would have been like the big red flag. But I will say that Phyllis could get melancholy around her birthday, which is when this took place. She could get very melancholy. I believe that, as her note indicated, she was just tired. And many things probably made her tired that were going on from world events that she couldn't endure because she was empathic to her career, which was a little bit stalled out because the record label was in between distribution deals and she wasn't sure when her record was going to come out. And if you are sensitive like Phyllis, you don't really have the tolerance for thinking everything is going to be wonderful. She wasn't really altogether sure if everything was going to be wonderful. So for me, if she had lived, I believe, that I refuse to be lonely would have been her biggest record. And the reason I believe that is because the songs on that record are very personal songs for Phyllis. Some of the most personal songs ever recorded by her. Primarily because she was involved in the record. She was in the writing process of the record, collaborating with really beautiful writers to tell those stories, to communicate those sentiments. Some people think it was her musical suicide note. I'm not so sure that it was. And none of us will ever know. But I do believe that Phyllis seemed to be clear that she was going to exit. And she had conversations with a couple of people about that before she did. I was not one of them. She knew she didn't even need to call me that. But in any event, yeah, it's just, for me personally, it's hard to know what was going on. Like, it's any kind of precision about what happened. Glenda, I, I can feel your choosing your words carefully. And I know that this is still, this many years later, still got to be a pain chapter for you. And I'm grateful that you've been generous in sharing the insight that you did. Cause there are just so many of us that, that loved Phyllis and didn't see that coming. just didn't know what was going on with her and caught us all off guard. So this many years later, for those of us who are going to have the chance to listen to you, just talk a little bit about the backstory and the insight into her life, as difficult as that is for you, I do appreciate that you're sharing 
that background. So thank you for that. We'll add that during some of Moses' attempt to heal, because she was attempting to heal, she recognized that the diagnosis of bipolar disorder, which is what she was diagnosed with, could be just unrelenting. And perhaps it was her battle with that illness that created her inability to deal. From what I understand through the statistics, bipolar disorder, one of the sort of natural outcomes of bipolar disorder can be suicide. Something like three in five people with bipolar disorder. It's a big statistic. I don't want to misspeak about it, so I, I won't. But the point is that it's a big statistic in terms of that is an outcome for people suffering from bipolar. That's not a good number. So turning the page to the, to her ninth studio album, as you mentioned, that was released posthumously in November of 1995, I Refuse to Be Lonely. Let's listen to the, uh, to the title track and we'll come back afterwards. So Glenda, to me, her voice here almost contradicts the lyrics as it sounds like someone desperately crying out rather than taking a stand. Still though, very powerful vocals and Phyllis's voice. Wow. Especially given the context. Take any part of, of that. What, do, what are your thoughts when you hear that song? I'll tell you what my thoughts are when I heard it the very first time when she was alive and she was playing it for me and I was listening to it just knowing that it was going to be the title track for this outrageous album, I found it to be her empowerment song. She was like, okay, I'm alone. Yeah, I'm alone, but I won't be lonely. I'm not going to succumb to that. I'm not going to succumb to whatever comes along with feeling sorry for myself, which is what loneliness calls up. You can just wallow and all of that. But I'm alone because I'm choosing to be alone. So she had that kind of feeling about it and was actually proud of that song. So of course, cut to her exit and people go, oh, that was her suicide note, I guess. That was her musical suicide note. And I just don't believe that. Yeah, you're right. I think the idea of being alone, but refusing to be lonely. That's a very definitive choice as we know loneliness is a killer, but being alone, we all need to be okay with being alone. Exactly. And loneliness is a killer. It's one of the things that is a top of mind for people now during the pandemic that people don't isolate to the point of loneliness and end up hurting themselves or even just becoming ill because of it. 
So as hard as it may be to believe, it's been 27 years since Phyllis passed. And as I mentioned, you're handling her estate and she is truly one of the greatest vocalists of our generation. No question about that. As you honor and celebrate her legacy, Glenda, talk about her impact. Who do you think she really touched? Who was her core audience? Phyllis's fan base was very evenly split between men and women. Some artists have more men than women, but Phyllis had it right down the middle. Women loved her as much as men loved her. And I believe that Phyllis's impact was, again, her strengths, her, what she communicated as girlfriend, you got to take care of yourself. She would do that with people. I believe that women who are coming through now, Brad, feel more self-determined artistically and professionally. They are developing and managing their own businesses. They are owning their own bodies. They're owning them and their sexuality. They're just saying, this is who I am. And they have an interest in self-care, especially around mental health and wellness. So I believe those are some of her impacts that she has influenced. I'll tell you, I don't know if this is true in terms of connecting the dots, but when Beyonce did that Coachella project, that Coachella concert, which was stunning, and the artwork on Spotify, at least, for the Coachella live album was Beyonce wearing a crown, which is, of course, Phyllis's trademark. I was like, oh, there's Phyllis with that crown. Here's Beyonce with that crown. So, yes, it was clear to Phyllis when she would wear her crowns who she was a queen. It was clear to her who she was. And she wanted everyone to know that. I believe that she inspired artists today to take that in and be there. I have no doubt that Beyonce's mom had some Phyllis Hyman records laying around their house back in the day. So... Yeah, no, no question that influence would reach. So to the extent that you're willing to discuss, what are you working on? Is there a life story in the works about Phyllis? I know there was a box set that came out recently, but what else well, might you be working on? My collaborative producer has been on a very short leash, Brad, and I can't talk about any details, but I will say that there are some very exciting projects in the works that will sustain and uplift Phyllis's legacy and her beautiful body of work. And to your point, last year we did kick off the, what I'm going to loosely refer to as a legacy campaign with that box set. It's a beautiful box set of nine CDs, her full body of work. And it came with a CD booklet that has a couple of anecdotes in it by me, but a beautiful essay by Janine Hupney, who just talked about how Phyllis inspired her back in the day. So for Phyllis fans and for people who are discovering, who are interested in discovering her old friend, the box set is something that you've just got to have. If you are a Phyllis Hyman fan, you got to have it. So that was our first, if you will, our first pillar 
on rolling out that campaign. Stay tuned for the others. <laughs> More to come. Well, good to know that you're running things and her legacy is in good hands there with you, Glenda. As we're closing, and as I alluded to up front, I wanted to uh, to touch on a part of our conversations. You're getting to know you a little bit since we've been talking about the show today. I know these things to be true. And you're the kind of person that once you get engaged with Glenda, you know, you want to go back and pick up the phone and ask her some other stuff because you just have this kind of deep insight into life. I love the way that you approach subjects, but I wanted to take a few sentences from your bio and then close on that and ask you to expand, if you will. So you say that you have developed a deep and abiding dedication to personal transformation through the study of mysticism, sacred teachings, and the learning that while paths are many, truth is one, and that you are training for certification as a mindfulness meditation teacher. So speaking personally, I know this chapter in my life old enough to have lost some people that I love and lived enough life to reflect with the wisdom of a few years yet the more that i know the more i know there is to know and uh, i'm a work in progress in on the meditation and mindfulness mission but uh, i need to continue to up my game because i do recognize the value in that but given your commitment to mindfulness meditation and what i just described what can be found through the pursuit of those things. I love this question, Brad. It's just so yummy. And, and let me say that we are all works mm. in progress. Okay. We are all works in progress. My experience is that at least these three things can be found in mindfulness meditation. Number one, an intimate relationship with awareness. Number two, freedom from suffering. And number three, self-love. Those three things are just as exquisite as it gets. To have this intimate relationship with awareness, that right there, if you can accomplish that, a lot of things will just clear up because you'll have that awareness of what's going on. You'll be present. And once you're present, you can look at what you're experiencing and know that it may not be true. And if you believe it's true, then you want to know how you feel when you believe it's true. And if it doesn't make you feel good when you believe it's true, then the inquiry is, who would you be without that thought? That leads to freedom. Oh, man. I told you, folks, she had that wisdom. It's been such a real pleasure getting to know you and taking this little Phyllis Hyman journey with you. Linda, I'm deeply appreciative that, that you decided to do this with me and so happy to know that Phyllis's legacy is safe in your hands. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time today to do Brad, this show. It's been thank my you. pleasure, my total pleasure and many, many deep bows to you for propping Phyllis up and giving her that honor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And we're going to go out on one of my favorite songs by Phyllis that I mentioned at the top of the show. And this one is called Bet You by Golly Wow. Phyllis Yeah.
So here we go with my favorite part of the day here with my dear friend, my sister, the lovely Ambassador Shabazz and how we move. She's sipping something very healthy over there. What you got in that bottle? Turmeric and ginger. It's a blend. Oh, okay. All right. Cold pressed energy. I need every bit of that. <laughs> that cold pressed energy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're big fans of Phyllis Hyman's. I know you are. We've oh talked God. about her lots, but just leave me with your thoughts and impressions after listening to Glenda talk a bit about her life and hearing some of her music. As you got into the conversation, it was holding on to the part that left many of us lost when she left here for us being untimely, but to listen to someone really celebrate her life. I, when she said she was a fangirl and then eventually just was protective of her. And for any of us that knew Phyllis Hyman, she needed that kind of advocate. She needed someone to be protective of her because I'm still sad about her being gone, but there were a number of people then. And so the best part was just that doggone music, the talent that, that she was, and also a big personality. She would be walking across 59th street, tall hat, heels, even though she was already tall, and coat swinging. She was like a tartan in stride. Yeah. The girl version of Jeffrey Holden. Ah, that's a good one. <laughs> I never heard that. And yet, if you knew the other side of her, she was just really much more vulnerable. She was as vulnerable as she was talented, as talented as she was vulnerable. And when I think back to those days with those, we were amidst a whole lot of, in the 70s and 80s, talented people who were carving out the shift from the previous era of music and yet another one was forthcoming which was like a tidal wave of changes and things and i it's a shame when we don't know how wonderful amazing and great we are and that this too shall pass in a way that leaves you a legacy we're still talking about her and it's 27 years later oh we need to talk about her so the newer generation really understands who phyllis hyman was and what she contributed to the artistic culture in many ways, not just vocally, but just in the dare and her interpretation of art. And that she came up in and around a whole group of folks in the 70s and 80s. I recall my father's baby brother, my uncle Robert, who was a Duke Ellington fan. And he came into New York from Detroit back in 81, 82 to see sophisticated ladies when it opened up on Broadway. And I was his date. Ah. And just and watching him, just watching him love being in that space and also watching our peers on that stage because it included the Heinz brothers at different times and Mercer Ellington and Judith Jamison. If people yep. remember Yeah. It just it and those this generation doesn't have a clue who Hinton Battle is and or the Heinz brothers for that matter. And so it's really wonderful to hear a tribute to Phyllis Hyman from someone who really loved her, respected her, protected her. And I can't wait to whatever it is that she produces because I think it's timely for us to be reintroduced in, in this culture, on this pop culture, this artistic culture, the social culture. Because when you think of, had we known then what we know now about sadness, about disenchantment, uh, our emotional, mental or physical health, the way we talk about it so freely and open now, she would have been surrounded differently. Donnie Hathaway, mm. others, really amazing human beings. You know, what also occurs to me, you alluded 
to this as well. But when Glenda brought up Beyonce, I think about artists from the seventies, like Phyllis, who really expanded the boundaries that they were contained by, even though she didn't live to be the beneficiary of that expansion. Someone like Beyonce and the artists that have come since are the beneficiaries of more friendly radio, a more friendly audience, an audience that has expanded along with the talent that at one point had been excluded as a result of the boundaries. But I think it is important to your point to point out how artists like Phyllis Hyman did pave the way in that regard. Pave the way at Luther, Donnie Hathaway. We can talk about some rich, brilliant artisans who were still with us as the new set was rising and passing them. Passing them not just not in terms of talent, but in terms of resources and dollars and sustainability because the people like Phyllis and Luther, they were living well, but they still had to work to live. Right. Ambassador, I put on last night after we had finished, I put on my earbuds and I just laid in the dark <laughs> and listened to six or seven tracks of Phyllis's. And her voice, even still now, of all the yeah. voices we've heard since, <laughs> unmistakable. Oh, yeah. Just glides well, through a song. Signature. Whether it's up-tempo, You Know How to Love mm -hmm. Me, or whether it is a ballad like Somewhere in My mm -hmm. Lifetime where you can feel the heart tugs. Yeah, there's no one else like Phyllis. No question. At all. Nope. nope. And I do wish that she had more moments of joy. Now, when she laughed broadly, but I wish she felt the love. I say that loosely and that deeply so that she could be amongst us and hear the reflections of how she was cared for. Yeah, I agree. I hope she hears us on some plane. Well, yeah. I know you, you've got a bunch of people coming in town and a lot of responsibility on your shoulder. I know it's going to be some fun though now, you, but I just love the work that you do. You got youngsters coming to visit big delegation of yeah. young kids and you got some great stuff yeah. planned, some academic stuff, some art stuff, and it's all falling on you and the little team that you assemble, but you do it quietly, Ambassador. And I know you shape memories for these young kids' lives that they just won't forget. Nor will I. I'm actually, despite the fatigue and then the details, getting everything done, I'm excited in advance of what they're going to experience while they're here. And I already know that when they get on the plane, that the world would have become a bigger place for them. It's that kind of experience you just don't forget. I applaud yeah. you for offering that. Great to see you, my dear. 